Another day Another dollar Makes you wonder where your money went You can scream And you can holler Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. One man's view of the changing world and the changing times and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't dictate it, is almost always during our 50-mile commute together. I guess it is our commute together. I don't know why I said that, but I mean, you do it with me every day whether you know it or not. Because uh, when I chat with you, my friends out there that listen to this show and make it what it is, Thank you for that. It's always, it is one man's view. That's my opinion. Sometimes you will go, preach on Jack. You know, right on. Amen, brother. Sometimes you go, what the hell is this guy saying? That means I actually have opinions and I don't pair it with what other people say. You're welcome to disagree with me anytime you like. I just may disagree with you back. Please feel free to use all methods of communication from the forum to the blog in the comments section to direct email to my contact form at thesurvivalpodcast.com to send me feedback. If I don't answer your rebuttal, it means I don't have time. I'm tired. It doesn't mean I didn't read it. doesn't mean I don't even think it makes sense. just means that I probably answered the same thing three or four times and I'm bored with it at this point. Uh, but I do take your input seriously. Uh, again, it doesn't mean I'll agree with it. Uh, let's get on with the show, though, today. I'm going to do another listener call-in show. i got uh, nine or ten more questions here written down on a little piece of paper, uh, which will be my only notes for doing the show. I do most of this off the top of my head. And... Uh, Hopefully my brain will stay strong and we can keep doing this. Uh, before I do, though, we'll have to do our usual house cleaning with a couple additional things thrown in. One, I sent an email to the email list and I made an announcement earlier, but I'm not getting enough feedback to put the show together. Um, I want to do a special show on June 20th. So what I need you to do to help make that show happen is be the show for me. And the way that you'll do that is you'll pick up a telephone and you'll dial 866-65-THINK. You'll get a voice message and then a beep. And then you'll leave a message and you'll tell me what the last year and survival and preparations has been for you and how you've changed your life for the better and gotten closer to that life you want for the better over the last year. That's for our one-year anniversary show. If the show's been part of that, say so. If it's just, hey, this is what I'm doing, you don't credit the show for it, that's cool too. I just want people calling in and talking about, hey, here's some of the things we did, and this is why we're better off now. I want to make a 30- to 40-minute show that's just one person after another telling that story. We've got about five right now. That puts us at about eight to ten minutes. Okay? So... Best advice I can give you, though, is have an idea of what you're going to say. Maybe make a few notes or something like that so you cross all the dots, cross all the T's and dot all the I's. But give me a call. Leave your message. Don't leave anything you don't want. You don't have to say, this is Joe Marcus, and I live at 123 Safe Street in Sheboygan, Illinois. Once you know, say something like, hey, this is Joe, or this is uh, Mike 19 or 5 from the forum, or, or, or whatever. You know, Throw some kind of a name into it. You can say, this is uh, Tom in Illinois. That's not going to narrow you down, Tom. Trust me. No one's going to know which Tom it is. So, come on, guys. Let's make that happen. I think it'll be an awesome show, and it'll inspire other people. That's a lot of 
about what we're doing here. Um, again, support our advertisers. They are visible on the site in the right-hand margin of the site. There's a group of them there. We have a limited number. If you're interested in advertising on the Survival Podcast, I suggest you get with me now. I'm about to bring on one more advertiser. Half the inventory will be sold. When half the inventory is sold, I'm going to raise my rates 40% for all new advertisers. Uh, because the traffic in the everything on the show is about doubled since I rolled them out. Uh, what I always want to remind people of on both sides, that potential advertisers and audience, we have a listener's ad council made up of a very large staff of very hardworking moderators on the forum. When an advertiser asks me to advertise on this show, I post a little link to their site and what they want to advertise in the moderator forum that's private for our moderators. That's like sending them to the Wolf Pack. If two moderators or more don't want the advertiser, I turn them down even if they have a check in hand and are ready to go. These are personal endorsements, not just from me, but from my staff. We don't sell advertising at the Survival Podcast. We serve listeners with quality advertising. Advertiser of the day that fits that model perfectly uh, is Tactical Response Gear, James Jager's operation. Give that guy some business. I'm telling you, he stepped right up, one of the first paying advertisers we had, and committed to a year to support the show. And he doesn't. I don't think he needs the business so much as he wanted to support the show. So give that guy some support back. All right, so let's, uh, let's move on in the house cleaning from there. Uh, member support brigade, if you want to support this show yourself and you think it's worth 25 cents an episode, consider joining member support brigade. There's a link in today's show notes. There's a banner on the website. Nothing special to do other than sign up and, and choose how often you want to contribute once a year at 50 bucks, uh, once a month at five bucks, once every six months at 30 bucks. It's your choice. You get a discount for committing to a year of support. And uh, that's all there is to that. I wanted to real quick mention uh, what happened yesterday for some of you guys that use feed catchers and you went to download the Survival Podcast and you got American Forum Radio. Uh, you probably did get yesterday's episode too, but you also got a two-hour episode of American Forum, which is a show that I did with Karen Katowski. I did an interview with her. It's a two-hour show. I'm the second half of that. Um, I mentioned it yesterday. I put a link directly to the, the, the MP3 on her server in the show notes, and who knew? Um, the feed tool sucked in her podcast as a second file, so the feed yesterday for yesterday sent out two updates instead of one, and one was Karen's. So I've taken that link out. I'm linking to her main show. If you want to listen to it, uh, you can you can find my interview from there. I'll put a link in today's again, but I won't go directly to the file. So I just learned something about podcasting, and for those of you who don't know what I'm talking about with feeds and catching the feed, you should probably learn about RSS feeds, but it doesn't really, it doesn't really bother you right now. Alright, so let's get on into the show. This is episode, I think I said 213, um, and it is going to be another listener question show. I got a great question from a guy. This is something I really want to answer, and this guy's a, uh, a close person geographically to, uh, at least where I'm driving to right now. Um, He's somewhere off of a major highway in North North Texas. I won't be any more specific than that. He didn't say how close, which is going to have a little bit of effect on my ability to answer. He didn't say, well, is that a mile? You know, is that a mile? Is that close? Or is it a half a mile? Can I stand on the shoulder and see your house? Is it two miles? 
You know, so it, it does make a bit of a difference. But basically what he's saying is they basically paid off their debt. They've started to get themselves into a really good situation. They've actually reached out to some neighbors. Told you to do it, folks. It works. And uh, they've got at least two neighbors in the neighborhood that are on board with the concept of survivalism and preparedness and having plans. One neighbor insists, though, that they'd all need a plan to bug out together because they're so close to the highway. And if the shit truly hits the fan, um, you know, with that close proximity to a major highway, they have a big threat from people fanning out from the surrounding towns and suburbs once times get really tough. He feels like they have actually a tremendous amount of advantages right where they're at. Which one makes the most sense? And the answer is it depends. First, let me say this. There are some distinct advantages to bugging in. So much so, and I found some new stuff to share with you about it, that next week I'm going to get off of this listener Q&A for the entire week. One of the shows next week is going to be on the distinct advantages of bugging in in a suburban area. How in many, many disasters, as long as it's not your house that's blown flat, burned down, or, or flooded out, uh, in, a, in a real shit hit the fan, you have a lot of advantages in a like-minded community in a suburban area. Okay? Now, the other side of this, if we have a Patriots-style collapse, if you've ever read the book Patriots, The Coming Collapse by James Wesley Rawls, that type of collapse, the dollar becomes worthless toilet paper. Not even $5 million buys a Coke anymore. Nobody even wants it. The money is just worthless. The entire infrastructure of the nation burns to the ground. I wouldn't want to be off a major highway at that point. So having a fallback plan is a good idea. It may not be that you really need a true bug-out location. It is the least likely disaster scenario that you'll have to contend with. When you're making these decisions in your life, you remember, first thing you look at is disaster probability. What's most likely to happen? Personal. Something to you. Two, neighborhood. Something to your neighborhood. Three, small region. Right? Four, large region. Five, national. Six, global. Alright? So plan first to deal with personal neighborhood small region. You get that done and you're 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 eighty percent there on everything else. So there is a major advantage to staying put, especially with people that are committed to work together. Now you have to judge how strong that commitment is. But what I would start doing is reaching out to more neighbors and start improving your sustainability in the neighborhood from a permaculture standpoint as well. I really think that that would be a great thing to do. Start creating a neighborhood that becomes more and more self-sufficient, a neighborhood that can feed itself. This is North Texas you're in, man. You can grow so much food here. Figs. Um, check out a tree called the Juju, Japanese date. Plants pomegranates, plums, peaches, nectarines, apples. All that stuff grows good around here. Start landscaping your neighborhood if you've got some like-minded people that are willing to work with you on it. Start putting in some swale systems to catch water. Make the community sufficient. Understand, though, yes, there could be a time when you have to bug out. You also need to have a, a, a time where you can defend yourself. But I think you're on the right track with understanding 
in the value of what you have. If you feel like you need a bug out location, find yourself an acre or two of, grand some, of land somewhere very remote. Get yourself a, a, a travel trailer, a cheap one for a few thousand dollars. They're everywhere right now. Three to six thousand dollars to buy you a pretty damn nice travel trailer that the average half ton pickup truck can pull no problem. Put together a battery bank in it with a few solar panels. If you have a place you can keep it locally, keep it with you on your property so you can take it with you when you go. Or take it out there and lock it down so it can't be stolen. Pull the tongue off it, pull the wheels off it, stick it out in your bug out location, stock it up a little bit and have yourself something. And you can do that for five to $7,000, land included. You can have it and then use it as a place to go camping. And just chill out. You know, you can find something not that far away, a couple hours. Even, I know right where you're at. And think north from where you are. Okay? That's all I'm going to say on your location. Alright, so, that knocks that out. Uh, let's look at the next question. Guy says, uh, will we ever scrap the Constitution of this country and join the global government? He's very clear. I don't want to go you know, tin hat on you or anything, but I think that's a real possibility. What do you think on it without the whole, they're out to get us and lock us up in camps? Just simply losing our national sovereignty. And uh, his other question was, well, if that happens, do you think that the state you're in, Texas, is the most likely to secede from the Union? And would you really want to move up to Arkansas permanently and lose the opportunity to secede with Texas? First of all, there's a couple questions there. Let's start with the easy one. Do I think there's a potential for the United States to completely join global government? Oh, we already have, to a degree. It's called the United Nations, and I don't like it, and I want us out, and I don't see it happening anytime soon. The only question is how much further will we go? Things like Kyoto, the Kyoto Treaty, Things like a global carbon tax are the global governmental threats that nobody talks about, nobody sees. It doesn't take a Bilderberger group and an Illuminati in a back dark room to make a global government. Once you start taxing the world as a collective body, it is almost done at that point. Because the whole way that government creates tyranny is to redistribute wealth. Right? And, and we, we hear we redistribute wealth, we think socialism, we think Barack Obama will take the wealth from the wealthy and give it to the poor, like Robin Hood. That's the illusion. The reality is the wealth redistribution is from the rich to the uber-rich and to the super-rich and to the elite. And they throw some crumbs to the poor. And you'll get and go, well, it's billions of dollars into welfare. And for these people, that's crumbs, folks. They measure their money in hundreds of billions and trillions of dollars. So, yes, I do think it could happen. Would Texas be the most likely to secede? Maybe. Maybe not. Don't really know. We do some stupid crap in this state once in a while. Um, so what about moving to Arkansas? I believe home is where you hang your hat. And if we do have to fight a battle, I'll fight it from Arkansas most likely if Arkansas is interested in fighting the battle. And I'm talking mostly politically. That said, I don't really intend on giving up my Texas residence. Uh, I'll give up my Texas house. I intend to maintain a physical residence in the state of Texas and, be, and remain technically a Texas citizen. Uh, whether that's a travel trailer in a lot somewhere here when we come visit family, I don't know. 
but we'll have an address, and we will be Texas residents carrying Texas IDs, living on extended vacations in Arkansas, at least in initially, until we figure out where we're going from there. So that's my plan. That said, if I saw it coming and I had moved to Arkansas and I wanted my Texas citizenship back, so to speak, it's driving the car south and coming across the border and going to the uh, Department of Public Safety and get a driver's license here again. So it's not like leaving France and going to China and becoming a Chinese citizen, right? So I'm not too worried about secession. I'd like to see some states not secede, but declare sovereignty and say we want to remain in the union with the sovereignty that a state is supposed to have. And I'd like to see about 20 states do it at the same time, not with a non-binding resolution like we're farting around with here, but something that means something, and specific things in the resolution, like you've already done this and we're cutting it off. We're not doing this, this, this. In other words, specifics should be part of that process. Um, We'll see when we get there. But Global government is a a real threat as far as I'm concerned. And there's a sovereignty issue, and there's certain things that we hold dear and sacred in this country that really most other nations are living under governments that no longer do that. And our Bill of Rights is supposed to apply to the world, not be taken away by the world. So I do worry about that. I just don't worry about going to a FEMA camp. All right. um, Guy asked another great question. He wants to put in basically hedges to create fencing and privacy around a fairly large piece of property. He wants to know if I have any suggestions that will do a good job of that, along with possibly producing some food out of it as well. Well, I think that's a great idea. I think you should take a run at it. And I think there's a couple things that you can do uh, to make that happen. One is, if you have certain areas, you kind of want to create like just the illusion of a fence, but you don't really need it, and you, you don't mind having visibility uh, in that direction, let's say maybe the other side of your property um, during the winter, uh, consider putting trellised vines in, grape vines, kiwis, things like that. Uh, they'll give you part, they'll give you cover at you know the, the summertime, and they'll uh, become deciduous and fall off in the winter. For the rest of it, if you really want to fence things in, and I, for some reason, I think this guy was in Texas. I could be wrong. Um, there's a tree that grows beautifully around here and all across the country, really. It's called Osage Orange. And it's a little bit thorny, and it grows, or it's also known as horse apple. It grows these great big green horse apples. Ground up, they're actually a great insect repellent. Squirrels tend to eat them. Uh, I think deer will eat them once in a while, at least when they get hungry enough. But they grow very, very thick and weave together and make very, very strong hedgerows. So just planting those all over the place, and they are a uh, kind of a pioneering tree. They're not really a nitrogen fixer, but if you kill one, you've done something bad wrong. I've got four of them that have popped up in my backyard in Arlington completely on their own that I keep cutting to the ground because they establish such a root system I can't get them out, and they keep growing back. And, I mean, these things are as big around as my thumb and four foot high, and I cut them to the ground, and three months later, they're back. All right, so they are a hell of a pioneering tree. For food, they are useless, but they are a good piece 
of your hedge row, your fence, your natural fencing. Think diversity out there. Some of the other plants that I think would make a really great addition to a hedge row are filberts or hazelnuts, depending on how you want to call them. They've been used in Europe for centuries to create hedgerows. They are an amazing. I love eating them. I love eating hazelnuts. So they're a great nut to eat. They spread on their own a great deal. Uh, they they reproduce a lot from uh, from tubers in the ground. Not really tubers. I'm trying to think of the word for them right now. They reproduce nowhere near as fast, but at the same type of uh, way that bamboo does, through sending out shoots underground and then popping up and continuing to grow. Plant several different varieties of them. They they do tend to uh, have some issues with some blight from time to time. More species will give you more cross pollination, more vigor, and more immunity and more resistance. Uh, another thing you can plant is clumping bamboo, and uh, I would suggest going through the Rain Tree Nursery catalog, even if you don't buy from them, and looking at all the all the hedges and bushes they have there and their ideas for planting hedgerows. Uh, I don't know how far south you are, and uh, but through most of the south you can grow a plant called oleander. It's totally useless for food. Um, it's actually poisonous if you consume it, so don't eat it. But you have to also do something very bad wrong to kill it as well, and it grows very, very vigorously, and if you plant uh, them close together, they will uh, produce a, uh, a hedgerow that is all but impenetrable. Um, so there's just all types of things that you can do there. But my big ones are, you know, whatever you plant, you can always trellis in front or, or behind them for like an additional layer uh, with, with grapes and kiwis are, are two awesome. And kiwi fruit, if you, you know, if you think of kiwi fruit, all you think of is little fuzzy things they grow down in New Zealand that you see in the grocery store. You can actually grow that variety of kiwi in most of the United States, but there are hardy kiwis and there are arctic kiwis. Hardy kiwis are good into zone 5. Arctic kiwis are good into zone 3. They grow the size of a very large grape. You don't have to peel them. Uh, you can pick them hard and they store a long time if you pick them hard and keep them refrigerated. Take them out, set them on a counter for a day or two and they soften up kind of the way you can do with uh, a hard, not yet ripe avocado. Uh, they are they're nutritious. They taste great. They can be used to make juice. They can be used to make uh, varieties of wine. They can be. I mean, there's so much you can do with them. And uh, after about three years, they'll produce about a hundred pounds per vine. So that's something to integrate there. Honestly, you can espalar uh, uh, fruit trees. Put in trellises. It would be something like you would grow a grapevine on big posts, plant pears, apples, and things like that, and train them uh, in an failure across that as well. And what I would do is I wouldn't try to do any, I think it was like 160 feet along the road that the guy had. Um, I wouldn't do any one of these things. It might have been more than that. Um, I wouldn't do any one. I would do all of these things mixed together. Because the more diversity you create, the more uh, resilience to pests, the resilience to disease, and the more safeguard you have that some of the food producing portions will always produce food. And I would be remiss about hazelnuts if I didn't say they are not more than just a nut. Ground up, they make a great flour. They're very good for making a variety of cakes and uh, things like that. Money question here. Guy says, I put my money in the bank uh, before the crash. I waited. Market tanked. Put all my money back in the market. I'm up 50% this year. Do I think this is a... And he said, should he take his money out or not? And do I think this is a dead cat bounce? But he meant that as one question. I'm going to take it as two. One, you make 50% on money, you take some of your profit. 
you possibly take all of your profit. Let me put it to you this way. If you, you first thing is, when you talk about retirement money, and I think that's what this guy's talking about is his retirement money. You should have a financial plan that says to, to reach retirement income that I want by the age of, let's say, 65, I need to make 10% a year. Well, if you've just made 50%, if you pulled out, you can let your money sit safe for five years and wait for another opportunity, and you've made 10% a year, effectively. That doesn't mean I would pull all your money out right now. I don't know what the market's going to do right now. I do think this is a dead cat bounce. The question is how high can the cat bounce before he falls back down? And it could be a year of continuing upswing. I really don't know. This is something I am not a financial advisor. I can only be so specific on this type of question. But what I would do is I would take a large portion of my profit and my principal back and I would look for more security with it and then maybe leave some portion of it there to continue to play the market with. So I might pull 75 and just you got to do your own thing here man. Don't don't hang me with this if the market roars continuously or falls and you lose the 25% because I'm just telling you what I would do. I would probably in your situation pull about 75% of the money back out of the market right now. Of that 75% I would probably take about 10 to 15 of it and uh, of the total so now we got 85% of it still sitting on the side and I would look for very specific stocks to buy with it that are still good value buys and I, I can't give any I just can't do it because I'm not going to be hung with somebody I went out and bought this and now it's worthless and jack made me I'm not going to do that but I would look for stocks I have a very solid play with individual stocks and I might take that 15% of money and I got the feeling it was a significant sum and that 15% may still be quite a bit uh, but I would divide it up over four to five really high quality undervalued stocks right now. Stocks that are going to perform well even through a recession, um, but that have been suppressed by guilt by association. Okay? I'll leave it at that. Um, I would take that other 85% and I would take 10 to 20% of it. And, I, and if you don't have any gold or silver right now, I would divide it up between gold and silver investments. Maybe um, if I was doing 15%, 10 into gold, 5 into silver. I would take the rest of it, and I would look for good, solid holdings uh, in cash right now for it uh, with a reasonable return, possibly six-month CDs, and I would start doing a staggering with it. That's just what I would do. That's a pretty conservative approach. But, you know, there's... You may even want to look, if you have a significant amount of money, of putting some of your money into treasury bills. And you might go, oh, my God, treasury bills. And you know what? We've never not paid on our T-bills. We'll stop paying everybody before we stop. When we stop paying on our T-bills, it won't matter. No matter where money is, it's gone. You may want to consider doing some holdings in foreign currency right now with a portion of that as well. Maybe 10% in Canadian bonds held in Canadian dollars. You've got to be, make sure that that's what the investment is. Australia had a little bit of problems. I got nervous. I pulled the money we had down there out. But I'm thinking about putting some money back in there. They, they got through their problems fairly well, and you have a potential to win or lose on currency exchanges. There's to lose with small portions of your money, not all of it. My biggest advice right now is don't have all your eggs in one basket. Break it up, multiple stocks, multiple classes of investments, and I would not screw around with mutual funds right now. But again, I can't fault you if you do. That's just me.
All right, I'm just telling you where we're at. We're at with solid bonds, solid cash, solid commodities, things like that. And I do not trust the market right now. And it's not. This is not like last summer when I said get out, get out, get out. I was pretty clear on that. I don't really know right now, and I'm being honest with you about that. Um, I do know the eventual result of what we're doing is a giant bubble and a bust. Do we run straight up to the bubble? Do we fall back and then run up and fall back and then run up the bubble and bust? Do we run slowly up to the bubble and bust? I don't know. But we've just created a bigger bubble than all of the other bubbles put together. And when you create a bubble, there's always a bust in the end. But that could be 2012, that could be 2013, it could be 2011. My gut, and it's just a gut, 2010 is going to look like a pretty good year. 2009 is going to look like a terrible employment general economy year, but it's going to look like a great stock market year. That's that's my gut. Peter Schiff, smart guy, would completely differ with me on this. you got to make your own choice. Guy wants uh, advice on putting together a simple, cheap solar array, trying to do it for under $200, something that would be portable and would do something like power a light, a radio, and a small television. I can help you with that. I'll give you some basic advice. Let me say, first of all, though, you can provide light without a solar generator with a light that uses a hand crank or even its own solar power using LEDs, and you don't need the power for the light. You can get one of the radios that basically works the same way, and you don't need it for the solar array. So just think, I'm not saying not to, to, to use a solar array to power those things. I'm just saying start thinking about how maybe instead of running two lights off of this, you could run one light off of this for brighter light and use some other redundancies to minimize how much power you draw from a small, compact device like I'm about to describe. The, the process is not difficult. All right? It's just how much do you want to spend? Do you want to buy used equipment that's a little bit damaged and you have to try to get buy with? Or do you want to buy new, highly reliable equipment? It's up to you, and it's going to affect your price. All you really need is a solar panel, and you can you can buy you know a 5-watt panel and do this. It's not going to have the effect of a 20-watt panel doing this, but you can buy a small panel at Academy that's designed to charge you know deer feeders if you want to. And you can make that work for this. But I would get the uh, highest wattage paddle that you can afford uh, within reason. You don't want a 100-watt panel that's designed to go on a roof or something like this. It just doesn't make sense. You need a charge controller. You hook your solar panel to your charge controller. That keeps uh, your uh, battery from overcharging. Then you hook to your battery, and then you have to decide that you're going to power DC or AC equipment. If you can buy a a little DC television that's designed to run on DC power, you're better off doing DC lighting, DC radio, DC little mini TV. And I'm supposing the guy wants a little TV so he can keep in touch with what the hell's going on if all the power is out. That makes a hell of a lot of sense. That's it. Now, how do you put it together? Um, you run your power from your solar panel to your uh, your charge controller. There will be instructions on how to do that. You run your charge controller to the negative and positive terminal of your batteries, and then you hook your negative and positive terminals of your batteries up to uh, your power inverter or directly to DC power outlets. The only thing is, what do you put it in? I suggest you go out and find yourself a nice little hand truck of some sort, or maybe even one of like the, uh, the good industrial toolboxes that have wheels and a hand 
handle so it can roll it around. Put your, you make that your battery box. And, uh, you know, mount things wherever you want them for your utility. It's just not that hard. You want to do it uber cheap? Find a used, slightly damaged solar panel on eBay. Um, look at the signs that, you know, people put at construction sites and stuff like that. Um, you know, like your speed is. You'll see the police put those out sometimes or uh, anything like that. Go up to those signs. You'll find a sticker on them. Who actually provides them? The government generally never owns them. They contract them. There'll be a number on there. Call that number. Ask them if they have any old junk solar panels they're throwing away. A lot of times they get damaged, but they still work. You can get them for free sometimes. Look on eBay. You can get pretty cheap used solar panels from people upgrading um, or just go buy a solar panel. That'll be one of your biggest investments. Your next biggest investment is your deep cycle battery. You need a deep cycle battery for this. Um, you can a lot of times if you find a place that sells or especially leases golf carts or electric forklifts, phone them up, ask them if they have any junk batteries. You can recondition those batteries a lot of times and get a lot of utility out of them, especially for running uh, a system like we're talking about here. Consider putting two batteries together. If you run them in parallel, they'll still produce 12 volts. If you run them in series, uh, they will produce 24 volts. So you have to know what you're doing with that. But if you look up series and parallel uh, batteries on uh, the Internet, it's not hard, it's not difficult, and you'll be able to sort it out fairly easily. But you could probably get some free batteries that way. You'll be better off buying a brand new battery. It'll have more life and more reliability and more dependability. If you buy used equipment, you could easily do this for under $200. If you buy new equipment, you're going to probably have to pay more. Do not skip out on the charge controller. They're not that expensive, and they are absolutely imperative to something like this. I do have one more pretty cool suggestion, though. You know I'm big on the life you want if times get tough, or even if they don't, right? So how can you make this thing cool for use other than when the shit hits the fan? Well, your little TV kind of makes it cool for camping and stuff, right? But your TV's going to be limited by reception. Radio works pretty much everywhere. Into your box, check this out. Go down to your local store, maybe even your local pawn shop. Find yourself a good little car stereo system, right? A couple speakers, little ones. You don't need real big booming ones. I guess you could put them on there if you wanted to. Um, and get yourself a good stereo head. See, even one with a little CD player and all, you can get them for under 50 bucks now. Build your box that's going to contain your battery or batteries a little bit bigger than you normally would. Put some wheels on it so you can roll it around. Mount your stereo straight into that box. Mount your speakers on the side of it. Use it as a speaker box. Okay? Set your solar panel up on it, and you have portable music. Go anywhere, do anywhere. You can even put a little light on it. You can set, you, and, and a radio doesn't use that much power. On a good sunny day, sitting out in your own backyard at your pool, you can pull that sucker right up near the pool, point the solar panel in the direction of the sun, turn it on, wham, bam, music portable. No wires, no power, no draw. No nothing. And don't forget with these systems, if you don't have solar power available but you want to use them for that type of thing, you can throw a cheap battery charger on them, plug them into the house, and they'll charge up lickety-split. So there's some advice on that. I'm going to fool around with this, and when I do, I will put a video together of what I built for myself. Next question, how, how, how actually effective is it to do, you know, organic companion planting versus actually using insecticides? The answer is if you do it right and you're patient and you observe and you realize what works and what doesn't work and you keep trying, 
and you're willing to maybe put a year or two into really developing a combination of annuals and perennials and bringing other things in and using a little bit of actual organic sprays like soaps, like neem oil, things like that, the answer is that it works much, much better. Absolutely blows away typical pesticides. It's highly effective. I can't get deeply into it a show like this of what to do. I've done some shows on it. Um, put in uh, companion planting into the survivalpodcast.com search box. You'll find some episodes on it. And also put in pest control. You'll find some episodes on it as well. Uh, but it is effective. If the, and that was really what the question is. Can, can it work? Yep, sure can. That's an easy one. Let's go to the next question. Guy said he's up in Colorado, Zone 5, I think. <sighs> Cold mountains. Um, it's midsummer. Probably can't get a lot of things to grow this year and harvest them. But... Nice out, wants to get into gardening. Does it make sense to go ahead and put his raised beds in right now? Start working on them, even if he doesn't get a good harvest out of them. Absolutely, positively, yes. It, without any doubt, without any question, with you know, no uh, doubts whatsoever. In fact, I'll tell you what I would do. I, if you're going to put in, let's say, two, I would plant one. With a mixture of, I'd actually probably plant both of them with a mixture of uh, legumes and fast-growing greens right now. Uh, lettuces, spinaches, things like that. You don't get that hot there, uh, so most of your greens that are going to be good for the, you know, the fall, even early winter, you're going to be able to get get through the summer. Start them in pots so they don't have to sit in the sun and bake. Uh, sunny windowsill or something like that, and plant some spinach, plant some lettuce, plant some things like that, and plant a whole bunch of beans. Even if you even if you don't plant the lettuce and stuff like that, one of the great things you have an opportunity to do this year is plant a, a legume that has a little bit of cold hardiness, maybe peas, something like that, or even just warm legumes. Put your beds in. Don't worry about square. If, you just, if you're not even going to try this year, don't worry about anything. Plant your beds. You set, set the soil compost mixture in them. Get a pile of like cow peas or beans or any kind of legume. Maybe a mix of them. Uh, get a good inoculant, nitrogen-fixing inoculant. Mix them up. Soak your beans for a good hour with that inoculant. And just spread them like you're planting freaking grass. Put a big, thick layer of straw mulch on top of that. Let them go until they die. Leave the straw... Add some more straw mulch after they die back from a frost. Let the snow cover them up. When that spring comes next year and you plant that, you will not believe the freaking results you will get. But the other side of that is there's plenty of time to do some lettuces and greens and things that will handle that some cre- maybe some uh, wrinkled, crinkled cress, bell isle cress, anything that will handle itself with light frost and even some heavy frost straight away and in. And remember, with a raised bed, you always have the opportunity, if you did a 4x4 four four square foot, type arrangement to build yourself a little four foot by four foot uh, portable greenhouse just sits on top of it and would extend those greens even into the snowy part of your seasons. But yes, it's worth doing. And if nothing else, plant the hell out of it with legumes. Even if you don't get any beans off it, you probably still will. Um, you probably still will if you got on it right now. But even if they just grow halfway, start to flower, the frost comes in and kills them, there's a million little nitrogen nodules now down in the ground. And when the top of the uh, plant dies, they'll fall off into your soil and they'll just be waiting for you to plant next spring. It's never too late to start working on the beds. Ever.
offer. The time to start your garden is now. Everything except the ground being frozen or under 10 feet of snow. The time to start your garden is now. I've got two more. I'll see if I'll do both of them or just one. Uh, This one could be long. Uh, I'll probably do a whole show on this, so I'll keep it short. person says they've just got out of college. Them and their fiancé or wife, I don't remember which one it was. Uh, But... You know, they're looking to buy a house together. They've pretty much killed all their debt except their student loans. Um, they're starting to prep. They want to know what are some common mistakes that people make when they buy their first piece of property. Whether it's a bug out location or just a place to live, what are the biggest mistakes? Okay, there's two I have for you. One is in their heads, they get married to an image in an area. And what I mean is, they see the way other people are living and they assume that they have to have that too. And they decide that there's some trendy area or some posh school area or something like that they have to be in. Do not buy in a neighborhood in decline, but do not think you have to be in the most up-and-coming, trendy freaking area there is. That's generally not a problem for people that listen to a show like this. But i got to say it, because so many freaking people do it. If you want to see stupidity and naivety in people buying homes, check out a show on, uh, it's like Home and Garden Network or something like that called House Hunters. And then there's another one called Property Virgins. Watch those and you will see stupidity. And you won't, then you won't make the mistakes yourself because you'll never see it when you're doing it. But when you watch somebody else do it, you'll be like, oh, God, that's pretty dumb. And one of the big ones you'll see is, again, that marriage to an image or marriage to a place. We've got to live in Buckhead. We've got to live in, you know, this side of Chicago. We've got to live in this suburb. It has the best schools. People, I want to live there because it has the best schools. Why? We're going to start a family. Do you have one yet? Uh-uh. It's your first house? Uh-huh. Okay, moron. How about this? How about you find a more affordable house closer to where you live that makes sense, that has room for freaking improvements? How about you work your ass off building equity in it by both paying on it sensibly and timely all the time and maybe a little bit extra to get the principal down? Save your freaking money like crazy for a better investment because you're not blowing it all in a house and make physical investments and sweat equity investments in the property and about four years from now sell it for a profit. Since the market's depressed like crazy, use the profit when your kids are actually starting school to move to a place with a better school district when it actually freaking matters. But no, 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 i got to have it now. We need an SUV to cart the kids around that ain't been born yet. See it all the time. Watch those shows. You will see morons. And they will show you the common mistakes that people make. I'm not calling anybody listens to this show a moron on that. I'm saying they're on those shows. Watch them. You'll see them. You'll see people spend a half a million dollars on a vacation home in another country. All right? You do whatever you want with your money, but I find that to be foolish. The other thing that people get married to, though, or I mean not get married to, the other big mistake is you start shopping before you've absolutely finite determined your budget. You hear this on, on these shows all the time. Well, our budget's 190000 but we could go as high as two forty. Um, No. <laughs> no, you stupid fool. These are the people that today are going, I should just live in my house and save my money. That little fiasco we've had going on for three days. That's how you get in that fiasco. You buy what you can't afford. 
All right. If your budget's 190, your budget's 190. I got a, I got a thing to clue you in on. How about you find yourself a $140,000 house if you really have a $190,000 budget? At least. Try to find a house that you can afford to do a 15-year fixed-rate mortgage with. And a lot of people are like, oh, my God, I'd have to live in a shack. No, you wouldn't. Now, am I okay with a 30-year mortgage? Sure. 20 years? Sure. Either one's fine. I'm saying try to do it. Try to figure out what your budget is for your house payment. Whatever you think it is, knock off 15% and try to do it. The worst thing that will happen is you'll find this house and you go, damn, this house is perfect. I'm willing, to, I'm willing to make do with this house. And we can't do it with a 15-year mortgage. It's fixed. What happens if we run the numbers with a 20-year or a 30? Oh, it works with 20 years. It works with, you know. <laughs> Try. Look at the low end of your budget. Start there. Know what your budget is before you start and leave headroom. When you buy a house, your living expenses go up. There's all kinds of things that you don't pay for as a renter that you do pay as a homeowner. There are also major investment and tax advantages. It's not a bad thing, but you have to be aware of them. You have to realize you're not just buying a house. You're also buying something that's going to require maintenance, care, and upkeep, and the only person that's going to pay for it is you. Ain't nobody else going to do it. So that's another one that I see. The other one I see is they don't generally do a good job of going out into the marketplace on their own, spending some time on Realtor.com, finding some houses, getting some addresses, driving by them, uh, looking at all the literature that's out there, uh, maybe going to some open houses before they go get a real estate agent. If you're a new home buyer and you go get a real estate agent, the first thing the real estate agent is thinking, not so much now because they're starving to death, but, but basically they're thinking, oh, my God, do I really want to freaking deal with these people? Because they know that they're going to show you all these houses, you're going to fall in love with one for a quarter million dollars that you can't afford and you can't get a mortgage for. So they don't they don't get the feel for the market, and they don't get pre-approved for what they can actually borrow first. If you show up and find a real estate agent and say, look, we've looked at these houses. They're close to what we're looking for, but not exactly, or we weren't really ready to buy yet when we found them. They've already sold. This is what they sold at. Or here's a group of houses we'd actually like to take a shot at. right? And anything comparable, you could find that might even be a better deal or a better area or a better option. And this is with land, too, even out in the country. This is com- you know, this is the stuff I'm already looking at. I'm already approved with this bank for X dollars. And even though I'm approved at X, I only want to actually spend Y. I'm not going to spend more than this. If I can find this for this price, it's a done deal. We're ready to go. That agent will work their freaking ass off for you. Because they know there's a paycheck waiting for them if they can just put the deal together for you. And they'll get aggressive, and they'll take those properties, and they'll start beating up the freaking sellers for you. And they will earn their freaking money. If you go to them and go, we're kind of looking for a house. Right now, since they're starving, they'll talk to you. But the first time somebody comes in the door that's serious that way, they'll kick your ass to the curb. And they'll just hear, you want to see this, whatever. I'll tell you what, I'll send you a list. You go drive by and tell me what you want to see. Right? That type of thing. So be serious and know. Know what you can spend. Know what the market will bear. Have an idea of what property is selling for in your area. I don't care if it's a house or just a piece of land. And don't get a real estate agent involved until you know. Okay? When you hire your real estate agent, 
This is the first conversation I want you to have after you've told them what you're looking for, how much money you have, and that you're pre-approved. Okay? This is the very next thing I want you to say. Dear agent, right? And you can say it John, Tom, Tammy, whatever her name is. There's something that's very important for us to understand before we can go forward working together. And I want you to listen to me, and I want you to hear me. And if you're not going to hear me, I want you to tell me. Because what I'm going to do at that point is I'm going to go find another agent. And I don't mean to be an ass, but I don't want to waste your time, and I don't want you wasting mine. Okay? And they're going to look at you very, very perplexed, unless somebody else that's gotten this from Jack Spirico has done it to him before, because I've not heard it from anybody else. Okay? And then the next statement is, I know about a phrase that's very well known in your industry. That phrase is that buyers are liars. And what they mean when they say that, and real estate agents have a point, because most people are not real swift when it comes right down to it, that a guy comes in and he says, well, I want a a three-bedroom, two-bath, brick, brick and vinyl, gable roof in in a community like this, and I don't want to spend more than $200,000. And then the guy turns around and buys a $314,000 two-story, five-bedroom house in a gated community when he sees it. That's because the guy doesn't know what he can afford, and he got sold on it, and the wife wanted more when she looked at how small the bedrooms are, and the bank was able to come, and all this crap happened. Okay, That's why they say that. I, I, I understand that. But what you tell them is, I'm aware of that statement. It does not apply to me. This is exactly what we're looking for. I do not want you to waste my time for one minute showing me something that's a lot bigger than this or a lot smaller than this. Don't go out of my price range. I'm not spending the money even if I can get approved. If you find something that's a great deal that's way undervalued for a reason, I'll look at it, but don't show show me neighborhoods that are in decline. This is exactly what we're looking for. We want this size of a lot. We want this type of house. We want it all done this way. And that's what we're sticking to. Do we understand each other? Can we work together? And most agents will freaking go, oh, thank God. Absolutely. And the ones that go, oh, okay, but you can tell that they're not really bought into it, they're not really buying you, you know what? Real estate agents are a dime a dozen. Kick that one to the curb. Go find you a new one because they're going to waste your freaking time. So that's my advice on that. Let me go ahead and see if I can knock out this last question. Uh, You might have heard the phone ring. Uh, earlier in the broadcast. That was a call from uh, my admin, and she told me not to be in a hurry to get to the office today because power's uh, out till 11. So the shit is hit the fan in my office, so I've got a little bit more time. That's why you're probably listening to this uh, podcast very late in the day or Saturday, Sunday, or maybe even Monday because I know I'm not going to be able to publish it till quite a while. Um, guy wrote me a letter and says, Hey, Jack, here's the deal, man. Uh, I sold my wife on this stuff that you're teaching us, you know, the, the gardening, the saving the money, the stocking, the food, all this stuff. I sold her on this with your one line. If times get tough, or even if they don't, I'm really trying to put together some great bug out bags now, and I've hit a roadblock. My wife's like, I just don't understand how a bug out bags going to help us if nothing goes wrong. Maybe we need to do some other things first. And he feels like he needs to get some bug out bags put together because they're very important. He's right. They are. They're very important if something goes wrong. He wants me to help him make a case that the bug-out bag will be helpful even if nothing goes wrong. I can do that as long as nothing major goes wrong. And here is how you do that. All right. Number one, don't be a knucklehead and try to put a $1,600 broke-down AR-15 in your bug-out bag and explain that you need to spend the $1,600. 
Okay, if you want a sixteen hundred dollar AR fifteen, I'm not against you doing that as long as you take care of everything else that you need to take care of for basic stability first. Okay, but don't use it. It's what I'm getting at as an excuse to buy a four hundred dollar high end GPS, a sixteen hundred dollar rifle, and things like that. If you don't do that, you'll be able to make the rest of this work. Phase two. This is how you explain it. Jack, the guy that we listened to, recently ended up at an event. Um, and it was just an event. It was something we willingly went to. It was cool. It was fun. Um, we'll really talk about exactly where it was or anything. But we were at this place. And when it ended, it was a typical, uh, you know, thousands of people trying to get out of this park through, like, two exits. And it became real, real obvious nobody was going anywhere. So we took a walk and uh, kind of enjoyed it. It was a beautiful day. It came back. And some of the people that were in line hadn't moved after a fairly good 30-minute walk. So pop the trunk on the old Jetta, whip out the bug-out bag. Two folding chairs, set them up. We're tailgating. Bug-out bag comes out. Zipper comes open. Little mini Coleman stove comes out. Jug of water comes out. Cooking pot comes out. Open up the mountain house, right? A little mountain house packet. I don't remember what we ate. I think it was, uh, I think it was a, a Thai noodles or something like that. Threw that down in there, sat there and cooked. Bugs come out. Bug spray comes out of the bug out bag. Couple squirts on the arm and the hands and things like that. We sat there. We had a little bit of late dinner because we knew we were going to be late getting home. Watched all the people sit in their cars, mumble, mumble, grumble, grumble, grice. <laughs> And uh, just basically enjoyed the show until the traffic went away, packed everything back up. All I got to do is fill the water jug back up, make sure I keep some fuel for the stove and buy one more pouch, stick it back in there, and we are back to square one with the bug out back. Now, nothing really went wrong. We just ended up stuck somewhere for a little while. We were going to be late for eating dinner. We hadn't eaten yet. So we could have either sat in the car and grumble, grumble, grice like everybody else, took a really long walk, or kicked back in our chairs with our bug out bag and had a little snack. Tell me which one you would prefer. And then think about what goes in a bug out bag. First aid kit. So nothing goes wrong. Well, nothing goes wrong, but Johnny skins his knee while you're out and about, you know, in, in, in town. Well, you pop your trunk, open your truck, whatever it is. Out comes first aid kit, a little bit of ointment and a bandage on Johnny's knee. Right? You think of how many, and I can't tell you how many situations there have been where a bug out bag has been advantageous. You're at, the, you know, you're over at a friend's house. You're out in their backyard, right? And you're having fun, barbecue, hanging out, that type of thing. The mosquitoes come. People are smack, slap, right? Hey, dude, you got any bug spray? Oh, I don't have any insect repellent. Okay. Yeah, all right. Out to the car. Insect repellent. Squirt, squirt, spray. Kids aren't miserable. Adults aren't miserable. There's just so many. If you think about all the stuff that goes in a bug out bag, there's like these little minor inconveniences that as long as you replenish it, you know, you're in good shape. 
back when I was a kid, we carried bug out bags with us all the time when we went four wheeling and stuff like that. Cause you never knew it was going to go wrong. Buddy of mine buys a brand new Jeep, saved up his whole life to buy a Jeep. So what do you want? He was a pretty young guy. He's like 19. He paid cash for a used Jeep. It's like seven grand. And that was a lot of money back then. And uh, he's like, yeah, let's go, let's go ride up by uh, the old airport. So I'm like, cool. I went into my car, got my bug out bag. We didn't call them bug out bags back then. Uh, but just got my bag of gear. One of the things I kept in there was an old entrenching tool. Uh, so we're cruising around, and there's like these old piles that are basically like coal slush on the sides of the road up by this place. There, he just wants to go up a hill, so he ends up, you know, basically teeter-tottering the Jeep at the top of the hill. Out comes the shovel, 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 push, push, Jeep down the other side. Otherwise, we'd have been stuck out there uh, pretty remotely waiting for someone to show up. So these are all things where something went wrong a little bit, but they're not disasters. They're not what the bug-out bag is really intended for. So I can't see anybody that really takes things seriously having a problem with a bug-out bag. But if you want a couple examples of reasons that you would need one, even if the shit doesn't hit the fan, there they are. And that's an interesting thought. I'm going to do a thread in the forum today, whenever I get into my building and the power's on and I can actually do some work. And I'm going to post a thread in the forum. What have you used your bug-out bag for that wasn't really an emergency? Things like I just discussed there. We'll see how many other things we come up with. I bet you the people that carry them never are like, yeah, I've never used it. Even when it's like, you know what, you go to a football game, and the game's over, and you're waiting to get out of the parking lot, and you're thirsty, you can pull out and have a drink of water. It just doesn't make any sense not to have a reasonable 72-hour kit with you in your vehicles wherever you go. So that wraps it up. This has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Hoping I get to publish it today and hoping I've helped you figure out how to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. You can scream and you can holler doesn't matter cause it all gets spent